Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Christian Coates Ulrichsen, a Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy in Houston, Texas. His most recent book, published by Hearst, is Qatar and the Gulf Crisis. Our conversation today is going to focus on how Saudi Arabia and the UAE are viewing the JCPOA talks in Vienna, and more broadly, how the two crown princes, Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed, are pursuing foreign and domestic goals. Christian, great to have you back in the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me back. The JCPOA talks are ongoing in Vienna, and Iran's foreign minister is claiming that the talks are going well. He tweeted on 9th of January that we're close to a good agreement. How do you think Abu Dhabi and Riyadh will respond? Should it come about to a deal that probably will not address their biggest concern, which is Iran's ballistic missiles arsenal? Well, the challenge with the JCPOA in terms of a regional perspective was that the deal never encompassed issues of primary concern to the Saudis, the Emiratis, or the Israelis, or or others in the region, which was precisely about Iran's uh, support for proxy groups around the Middle East and their ballistic missile and other programs, which were, in the regional states' views, the most concerning. The Obama administration in 2013, 14, 15 took the view that they could isolate one aspect of Iran's behavior to address through the JCPOA, which they did, And if it's the case that the Biden administration manages to get back into an agreement, it will likely be the same issue, that it's focused on the nuclear file rather than all the rest. And uh, back in 2020, there was debate during the campaign that, or talk about a potential follow-on agreement, which would address some of the other issues. But uh, the question then would be, can they get to a follow-on agreement? Is there any political capital and willpower on all parties to do so? And if so, would the Saudis and Emiratis be represented? So I think the Saudis and the Emiratis especially will be looking for any sign that there might be some sort of follow-on process and for what what that might take and whether they might be part of that process moving forward. I think those will be the yardsticks by which they measure any any potential re-engagement. But the fact that, once again, they've been effectively cut out of the conversation, I mean, there's presumably there's things going on behind the scenes, that must be galling to them. Well, I think it's frustrating in the sense that they're probably looking at this and seeing a 2014, 2015 all over again. And we mustn't forget, for example, that the Saudi-led intervention in Yemen against the Houthis, whom the Saudis believed, with some justification, were receiving some level of support from Iran, that intervention came the very week that the original JCPOA negotiations were, were going down to the wire at the end of March 2015. The negotiations were then extended for four months until July 2015. But the Saudis basically went into Yemen the week that they thought the negotiations would produce the agreement as a signal to the Obama administration that said basically, look, you focus on one issue of Iran's behavior, we're going to focus on something else. We think that we're dealing with an Iran that is supporting groups that are regionally destabilizing. If you're going to only focus on that issue, we'll take action ourselves. Now, what the Saudis and Emiratis probably didn't anticipate in 2015 was that taking action in Yemen would get them involved in such a protracted and now unwinnable conflict. And so we're unlikely to see the same response just because they've learned from the last uh, 
seven years. But, but yes, absolutely, there were different priorities. And back in 2015, the Saudis were willing to, to go their own way and take action on those priorities. They're probably less so these days, but I think the underlying feeling is probably quite similar. And, and is it fair to say that the Emiratis and the Saudis view Tehran through slightly different lenses? And does that make a difference in terms of regional security concerns? Well, I think there has been a difference in degree. I think especially even from the very beginning in 2019, when Iran began its campaign of maximum resistance to the maximum pressure campaign that the Trump administration began, the UAE began to reach out directly to Iran, whereas the Saudis always did so indirectly, I think, for people in Iraq, for example. And even now the meetings are taking place with intermediaries, in, I think, in Iraq, whereas the the UAE was much more direct, willing to engage directly and also go a lot further, I think, in, in reaching out to Iran and really putting a lot of things on the table for discussion. So there seems to be a difference in directness and also in degree. Um, that probably undermines a notion of a common GCC or Gulf-wide, Arab Gulf-wide position that the Saudis might, uh, might not like in the sense that the Saudis probably want and feel that they should be the leadership, the leaders of any Arab Gulf-led position on, on Iran and on the JCPOA. And clearly, with the UAE having gone its own way, that's quite a, a big uh, kind of big breach in any region-wide consensus. And of course, the uh, UAE has financial and economic deals with the Iranians. Uh, certainly during the first set of sanctions, there were many allegations about how the UAE assisted actually in, in breaking those sanctions. Well, again, you have to remember the UAE is a collection of seven different emirates, and some of those emirates, like Dubai, have historically had very long, very close, and very deep trading and other commercial relationships with Iran, and uh, and that has continued. And to some extent, the sanctions forced them into the sort of murkier gray gray zone. And uh, there were, as you say, a lot of allegations in especially when the initial sanctions regime around Iran tightened after 2010, that Dubai was one of the loopholes for sanctions evasion and for re-exports. And so Dubai has always, I think, made it clear that they want, they, you know, they have to live with Iran. There's no other option. Iran is their neighbor. And the ruler of Dubai, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid, said as much in 2015. And so I think that's still the underlying calculation that they can't, uh, they can't switch their geographical position. They can't choose for another neighbor. And so they need to find a way of coexisting. Abu Dhabi and uh, more particularly Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, they've shifted from their little Sparta image to a more nuanced and diplomatic approach uh, as with Iran, for example. But, but how overall do you see that working? Well, it's not just with Iran, it's with Turkey as well. They've obviously also made up with Qatar. We've seen a succession of high level meetings between senior Emiratis, such as Sheikh Taknoun, not yet Mohammed bin Zayed with the Qatari leadership. So there still is perhaps a degree of reservation about meeting at the very highest level. But I think the UAE and Abu Dhabi especially, given that Abu Dhabi is driving this little Sparta image of a sort of a, an assertive, muscular foreign policy, I think there was a recognition that that policy was beginning to risk getting the UAE drawn into these kind of regional quagmires, both in Yemen, but also to some extent in Libya as well, after Khalifa Haftar's attempt to take Tripoli failed. And once Turkey began to pour in resources 
um, at a level that the UAE simply couldn't match. And so they've already seen from Yemen how you can quite easily get sucked into a conflict with no clear outcome, or at least no clear favorable outcome. And so at some point in 2019, 2020, going into 2021, there was a calculation, I think a pragmatic calculation, not to cut their losses, but to shift to a new approach that maybe continues to support some of the groups they've been supporting, but in a less obviously confrontational manner, and to begin to try to dial down some of those regional tensions with Turkey, with Iran, and especially, I think, with Iran, because there was an acknowledgement, I think, once we had those attacks in 2019 on energy and maritime targets, that they were so precise and so effective, especially the attack on Abkhayek, that I think people in the UAE felt, well, if they can do that with this, this degree of precision, if they took out some infrastructure in Dubai or in Abu Dhabi, that would really damage the image of the UAE as a sort of safe place to live and work in an otherwise unstable region. So I think there's a very pragmatic calculation made that the risk is no longer worth the, the effort. It's interesting too, isn't it? Because we think of uh, Sheikh Mohammed, the, the Dubai Crown Prince and Mohammed bin Zayed, in some sense contesting with each other. And, and we saw the ascendancy of MBZ uh, at the expense of uh, Sheikh Mohammed. Now perhaps there's a, a bit of a recalibration? It's certainly the case, perhaps, that Abu Dhabi's driving force behind the kind of regional and security and foreign policy, although that will probably continue, it just may be that there's more of a degree of moderation within that framing. And that perhaps there is more of a recognition as well, that especially with the 50th year of the, of the Federation, you know, that the UAE is a collective entity. And uh, you know, the, the Sheikh Mohammed in Dubai is also the prime minister. There might just be a more of a rebalancing uh, back towards some of the federal level uh, structures and institutions, rather than perhaps the more unilateral Abu Dhabi-led process that seemed to dominate at least for a few years in the late 2010s. Meanwhile, uh, Mohammed bin Salman is spending like there is no tomorrow, as the saying goes, uh, the latest uh, $1 billion contract for the enter entertainment city of Qadir. And of course, there's that purchase of Newcastle United, the football club. <laughs> Oil prices holding steady around $80 a barrel. So I'm going to steal from the Beach Boys. Uh, can MBS continue to spend, spend, spend because daddy's not going to take the PIF away? Well, uh... It's certainly the case that the rise in oil prices has benefited MBS. Uh, there was a risk, I think, when they collapsed in 2020 and when the pandemic really hit, that the Saudi economy and MBS's vision, the Vision 2030, which was so so heavily predicated upon these sort of giga projects, these sort of big entertainment and kind of hospitality initiatives, that they would be the ones hardest hit by the pandemic, and, and they have been. But certainly the, the rise in oil prices has boosted Saudi revenues. I think they may be heading towards sort of break even, sort of budget break even for the first time in probably since 2014 or 2015, certainly since MBS came to prominence and King Salman came to power. And so that, that adds extra revenue to MBS's, to the Saudi coffers. And certainly it's the case that the Saudis, I think, are also now more aware than they were in the past. So is the UAE, actually of the need to monetize oil, oil resources to get the oil out of the ground before it maybe loses value in a climate stressed or kind of climate action environment. And so long term, I think they do want to try and make sure that the, 
the revenue is converted into uh, assets for the PIF to then invest not just in Saudi Arabia, but also around the world. And clearly, there's also that Mohammed bin Salman at some point in 2021 also did begin to talk about potential future IPOs of more of Saudi Aramco. And again, trying perhaps to convert some of the, uh, the revenues and the resources that Saudi has currently into investment opportunities to, to continue to allow the PIF to grow and to try and perhaps eventually develop a, a genuinely non-oil stream of revenue, which is more or less uh, more or less guaranteed to at least produce a return for the, for the kingdom for, for years and decades to come, especially if at some point oil might lose value or you know, there might be a, a, a move away in some sort of energy transition. But it is a gamble in, in a sense because he's actually with these big entertainment projects as a Red Sea project, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Neom, uh, in challenging Dubai, isn't he? He's going head to head with Dubai. Yes, and this is going to be interesting to see again how this affects UAE and Saudi relations. There's already been a degree of economic competition, which has become more visible, thinking about Saudis saying in February 2021 about companies who want to do business in with government agencies in Saudi Arabia, they'll have to have their headquarters in Saudi from 2024 onwards. Well, that's a clear shot across the bows of Dubai and to some extent Abu Dhabi, maybe to a lesser extent Qatar and Doha as well. But clearly he's trying to muscle in on some of these sectors. The challenge might be that these are sectors where the UAE has had a 20-year head start, that the UAE has been very effective in building a tourism economy and building and projecting Dubai, especially as a city for for all seasons, and in providing the legal and regulatory sort of frameworks for which do provide incentives for companies to open up shop in, in the UAE. I mean, uh, the Saudis are really playing catch up. They're trying to move in and sort of catch up on a 20-year head start. And actually, the parallel there is with Newcastle and Manchester City, because uh, again, you can see that currently Newcastle is playing catch up to a Manchester City, which was taken over by Abu Dhabi in 2008, and is light years ahead. And so almost the Newcastle Manchester City uh, example is a microcosm of, of the broader picture where the Saudis are now moving into areas in which the UAE has had a 15 to 20 year head start and they have an awful lot of, uh, of catching up to do. Well, yes, now you've mentioned Newcastle United. I know you're a football fan and of course the the way in which that takeover was secured was that Mohammed bin Salman, completely separate from the public investment fund, clear Chinese wall there, not a problem. The reality? Well, I, it was very, it's very difficult to draw any line of distinction between Mohammed bin Salman and the PIF, purely because Mohammed bin Salman is the, uh, is the chairman of the board. And so the PIF ultimately, through the governor, Yasser al-Ramayan, who was also extremely close to Mohammed bin Salman, and you know, reports to him. Now, what I think the defenders of the deal, the Newcastle side, have said is that Mohammed bin Salman wears multiple hats. You know, Mohammed bin Salman, the chairman of the board, is a different entity from Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. Now, for me, I think the challenge there, the challenge of accepting something along those lines, is that Anyone with any knowledge of Saudi Arabia over the last seven years, since 2015, will know that Mohammed bin Salman doesn't really delegate. He is a he's accrued and concentrated so much power in his own hands. And he has shown through his actions 
that he is willing to take unprecedented measures against anyone he perceives to be a threat domestically and to some extent internationally, it is hard to see how that separation could exist in practice. Even if on paper he is attending meetings of the PIF in his capacity as chairman of the board, you cannot divorce that from the fact that he is effectively the one decision maker that counts in Saudi Arabia today. And so I think, and also actually, when whenever he announces a major initiative, it also is announced by the crown prince. It doesn't come out as this was announced by the chairman of the board of directors of the public investment fund. This actually comes out under the rubric of the crown prince. And so that, again, is another example, I think, of that, that lack of separation. The fact that when MBS does announce a major new initiative, there's not only a major role for the PIF within that initiative, but that initiative is branded as coming from the crown prince rather than from the chairman. So again, that separation isn't really there, but it could just be that it had to be there on paper just for the deal to be nodded through once the uh, issue of sports broadcasting piracy, which I think was the real issue that held it up, was was resolved. That was the uh, BN uh, uh, was... was nipped at by the Saudis, wasn't it? Uh, with Biot, I think they called it, wasn't it? Well, it was more than being nipped at in the sense that the Biot queue, which you know, is credibly linked to Saudi Arabia, had been pirating broadcasting rights, including for the Premier League, but also for a whole host of other football and other sporting tournaments, including the World Cup, for, for several years. And the issue there was that BN holds the rights for Premier League in the Middle East. And if you think about what has made the Premier League this incredible global success, it is broadcasting. It is the revenues they have taken from initially domestic broadcasting in the 1990s and since the 2000s from selling and packaging those rights all around the world. And so were the Premier League to be seen to be acquiescing in the theft of those rights, those rights would lose their value. And the sort of the, you know, the goose that laid the golden egg for the Premier League, the very basis for the Premier League's global domination would have been under threat. And so from the Premier League perspective, as long as that BLQBN issue remained unresolved, they couldn't be seen to be taking anything less than a complete a position in complete support of their existing partners, because other partners otherwise might take fright. And it could almost be an invitation for potential pirates elsewhere to just come in and have a go. So yeah, there was a, a clear quid pro quo, as, as 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 they say. And well, it's the January transfer window. Let's see how much uh, uh, the PIF slash MBS is willing to spend to uh, try and keep Newcastle out of relegation. But uh, well, let, I think it's let, just going to be interesting to see because they are so far behind in a sense that they basically have four months to try and at least stay in the Premier League. And you know, this will, I mean, people forget that even Manchester City took three or four years before they became competitive. So, I mean, if I think if, Saudi, if Newcastle fans are thinking it will turn, turn around overnight, it, it won't. But for them, the, the primary motivation now just has to be to make sure they're still in the Premier League come, come August. Let's look at Yemen. You've mentioned Yemen already, but, but MBZ has played his hand well. I think MBS poorly, uh, and the people of Yemen have paid a terrible price do you see Yemen splitting apart because the Emiratis have supported the the Southern Transitional Council, the, the separatist movement? And, and if that happens, then would it not become a client state for Abu Dhabi and, and, and MBZ's uh, ambitions? 
And of course, the other question is, how will MBS get out of uh, out of Yemen? Well, it would be interesting, wouldn't it? Because uh, southern Yemen, at least when it was in the form of the PDRI, the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen between 1967 and 1990, was also a client state. In that case, it was a client state of the Soviet Union to many, to many, in many regards. And so, you know, the, the degrees of cliency go back a long way. But absolutely, the the UAE has gotten heavily involved with the STC. They, you know, the STC did unilaterally declare, I think, a degree of sort of autonomy in twenty in twenty twenty, which the UAE, I think, tried to strike a balance between their position as a coalition partner and actually supporting a non-state or kind of a sub-state actor. It's been quite a difficult balance to try and follow. And clearly, any move by the STC to develop even greater autonomy would be resisted, I think, by the Saudi-led coalition, and especially by the Yemeni government in, in exile in Saudi Arabia. And that's going to be maybe a test of will between the different factions and the external parties supporting those factions. And of course, then we have the added complication of the Houthis remaining in control of Sana'a and of large parts of northern Yemen. Maybe some of the more recent advances are changing some of the dynamics in parts of Yemen. But ultimately, can the Yemeni parties find a way of coexisting with the Houthis as a legitimate and recognized political actor? And can the Houthis, for their part, accept and acknowledge that they have to share power and cannot just rule through through coercion and through their will? And I think those should be the difficult factors that will determine whether or not there is a political resolution and also whether or not there's some, whether or not Yemen stays together. Now, as you say, the challenge for the Saudis and for MBS, especially given he's also defense minister, is that how do you find a way of withdrawing in a way that at least satisfies the degree of honor and dignity and makes it doesn't make it look as if you've just suffered an operational military and strategic defeat, which in many ways they have, but what needs to be put in place to allow a sort of face-saving exit. And is that a secure southern border for the Saudis, a border that isn't uh, vulnerable to Houthi uh, incursions and attacks, uh, missiles? Would the Houthis remaining in control of Sana'a be a, a step too far? Would some sort of power-sharing arrangement be needed? And if so, would the Houthis accept it? Does Iran have enough leverage over the Houthis to make the Houthis accept such an agreement? Or are the Houthis now so entrenched that they have their own sources of domestic power that they could just turn around to the Iranians and say, well, thanks, but no thanks. And so I think these are all going to be issues that feed into whether or not uh, Yemen stays together and if and when the Saudis can find a way of withdrawing in some way that satisfies some of their basic uh, basic sort of face-saving requirements. Yeah, as you say, that's, that's a very difficult issue, isn't it? The face-saving, because... One thinks really the only way out will mean a loss of face for Mohammed bin Salman. He's a very proud young man, and that's not something he would be uh, probably willing to accept. But I wanted to turn, if I could, to uh, Mr. Biden and how both MBS and MBZ view the Biden presidency. Do, do you think they see him as a weak president? Do they see opportunities as America's leadership role in MENA continues to diminish? And, and then, of course, what are the consequences as China and Russia raise their game? Well, I think probably people do see the administration as weak, partly because they don't have a huge 
space in Congress. We've seen how the administration has struggled to get its major initiatives through. I mean, they have a almost, I mean, it's a 50-50 Senate. And as closer we get to the midterms, where the expectation is if the Republicans win one or both houses back, then it'll make it almost impossible for the administration to get anything through legislatively in the second half of the term. And I think people are increasingly beginning to look to 2024 as well. I mean, we're beginning to enter that phase of a administration where thoughts do begin to turn to what comes next. And so I think there is maybe a perception that politically the administration isn't as strong as it could be. It has struggled to perhaps stamp its will or kind of its political will on, on Congress. And I think also what happened in Afghanistan, the way that even though the withdrawal had been agreed upon for by, by President Trump, in fact, the way it was handled, the way it was carried out, the chaotic nature, the, the mixed messaging, and the sort of notion that the US under Biden had somehow abandoned its domestic its kind of regional partner, you know, that, that I think would have sent shockwaves again across the Gulf, building on the shockwaves when Trump didn't respond overtly in 2019 to the attacks on Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which really, I think, caused Saudi and Emirati figures to question the validity of the security partnership they thought that they had. And I think the way that the administration behaved in Afghanistan, especially towards its partners in Afghanistan, but also its partners in the whole wider mission, I think that was extremely concerning. I think they looked at that and thought, well, the direction of travel under three successive administrations, Obama, Trump, and Biden, is that the US is going to be perhaps disengaging, maybe not so much on the ground, but at least disengaging in terms of intent, is perhaps less reliable, more unpredictable. Obviously, if it's not a Trump administration or a sort of Trump-like administration, who knows what might happen then. So I think the reliability and the predictability is being called into question, maybe as never before. And the fact that this is now a direction of travel maybe from 2011 onwards after Obama's response to the Arab Spring and then negotiating with Iran over the heads of the GCC, they can now see almost a decade of perhaps uncertainty, which I think is why they're they're moving to diversify their security and commercial and defense relationships. Why perhaps now we see reports of Saudi Arabia and China or ballistic missiles, why we see increasing cooperation with Russia in certain areas, why we had those reports of the Chinese allegedly building a sort of a secret base in the UAE, which the UAE may or may not have known about. But, you know, they're hedging their bets. They're, they're diversifying their relationships just because perhaps they're beginning to prepare for a, a post-American Gulf, or at least a Gulf in which the, the US is no longer as interested. And so from pragmatic self-calculation, they may also be sending a message to the US by saying, well, if you don't want to partner with us, we have options. And would you rather that we partnered with Russia or China instead? And clearly with a wider dynamic of US-China and US-Russia relationships, as they are currently strained, you know, the sight of Saudi Arabia or UAE turning to China might focus minds in Washington um, and say, actually, we need them more than, more than we'd like to admit. And so that might be part of the calculation, sending a message to Washington saying, well, you know, you need us, and if we if you don't, we have options. So I think that might be part of the calculation being the message being sent as well. As as you say, a, a pragmatic approach and the multipolar world uh, developing very interesting uh, byways and highways. Uh, I wanted to ask you about 
North Africa, the, the coups in Sudan and Tunisia, the latter described as a soft coup, but really a coup nonetheless. The Hirak movement in Algeria stalled. Uh, Sisi's repression grows deeper and more Orwellian by the day in, in Egypt. Will both the Saudis and the Emiratis not take sucker from the message that authoritarianism has turned the tide on the democracy movement in North Africa? Well, I think that's a, a message that will be reassuring to leaderships in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, who I think did fear or did look at increasing concern at the any notion that opening up politically could could be beneficial. I mean, especially after 2011. And then, of course, in 2013, they backed uh, Sisi when he uh, reversed the 2011 opening. Um, there was obviously a second wave of uprisings in 2019, as you say, in uh, Algeria and in Sudan. Um, there were large-scale protests in Iraq and in Lebanon at the same time as well. So it did seem that there was another wave of popular anger at governments who were seen to be unaccountable, out of touch, perhaps unwilling and unable to respond to the needs of their citizens. And so any 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 evidence of those protests bearing fruit, I think, would have been just concerning for any potential contagious effect for anyone tempted to sort of question the authoritarian status quo, perhaps in Saudi Arabia, for example. So, so yes, the um, sort of reassertion of authoritarian control in Tunisia, in in Sudan, in Algeria, is definitely comforting, I suspect, to authoritarian leaderships in the Gulf who, who want, I think, increasingly would like, would like their message to be their own citizens to be, well, if you open up, you risk division, you risk chaos, you risk losing everything. And, you know, it's better to just have predictability and authoritarian kind of authoritarian predictability. And I do think we're now at the end of that post-Arab Spring decade. I think that decade of sort of post-Arab Spring confrontation that began in 2011, I think probably with 2020 and the pandemic, that has now come to an end. And we're now obviously in some with the UAE, especially with Turkey and Iran, we're into a new decade where de-escalation seems to be on a geopolitical level more, more the sort of name of the game. But I do think perhaps we have seen the decade of the Arab Spring come to an end. So has the Arab Spring died then? Well, even Tunisia was perhaps the one bright spot and the fact that the Tunisian leadership for the president was able to do what he did without any real pushback and um, with or perhaps with maybe some support from other regional partners, including from Egypt, you know, he was able to extinguish, I think, the you know, the one bright spot of the of the Arab Spring. And so just as the restoration of military rule in Egypt in 2013 was highly symbolic, just because it had been a Tahrir Square Mubarak's fall in 2011, which had really galvanized those protests in 2011. So the 2013 restoration of military rule kind of really signified, I think, the end of the, the first phase of the Arab Spring. So I think the kind of just kind of extinguishing of Tunisia's success story in 2020, 2021, really also was symbolic because again it just made 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 it clear that the one one success story was now was now over, and that even a decade of movement towards a more participatory system couldn't ultimately generate the safeguards and the political capacity to stop another strongman from just shutting it all down. 
Finally, then, uh, Christian, Syria, I mean, it looks like a, a win for Assad and, and Iran. So is it one that the Saudis and the Emiratis are just ready to accept? I think the UAE especially has acknowledged and accepted that Assad is going to be around for the foreseeable future and that you you have no option other than to deal with the regime. I think the Saudis are there too, to some extent, maybe less visibly there, but have made that calculation as well. I mean, to some extent, the Saudis more than the UAE perhaps might be seeing it more in terms of you know, we need to deal with the regime so that Iran doesn't have a free pass, a free reign. And, and perhaps the legacy there is that the you know, the sort of Saudi refusal to work with Nuri al-Maliki in Iraq after 2006 really kind of gave the Iranians that free hand in Iraq as well. And I think maybe to some extent lessons have been learned, but if at least you can engage, you can try to at least not necessarily completely oust any Iranian influence, but at least perhaps alleviate or sort of dilute some of that influence. And so that, I think, especially for the UAE and for Saudi Arabia is, is probably behind their attempt to bring Syria back into the Arab fold, kind of maybe to then try and wean it away, not completely, but reduce some of that level of Iranian influence. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it, how it plays out because the so-called Shia Crescent, of course, uh, that, that is a, an anxiety, perhaps more so as, as, as I think you're suggesting for Saudi Arabia than for the United Arab Emirates. Uh, just one more question. Do you see any possibility of uh, any kind of a hot war if the JCPA POA falls apart, if the Iranians proceed with their determination to secure uh, nuclear weapons capability? Of course, we, we haven't yet even touched upon Israel, but do you think mm. there is a possibility that this could all go terribly, terribly pear-shaped? Well, I think we have seen the statements from Israel that they might consider some form of strike. Now, clearly, these have been statements that have been being made for the last 15 or 20 years in some cases. You may see the Biden administration feel it's boxed in politically if, if uh, on a domestic political level, that they might feel they cannot oppose any strikes by Israel. Were that to happen, I think if there was a hot war, it wouldn't be involved the Gulf states wouldn't be involved directly. I think they learned, especially in the UAE and Saudi in 2019, that they were much more vulnerable than they perhaps thought they might have been. Were there to be any Israeli strike or perception of an Israeli strike, it would be very challenging, I think, for the UAE, especially just because of the Abraham Accords and because of the close security, defense, and uh, perhaps intelligence connections between the the UAE and Israel, and especially the perception of those links, it might be more difficult for the UAE to um, explain that they were not involved, and especially because uh, there was a strategic dimension to the agreement, normalization agreement between the UAE and Israel that was absent perhaps from the other agreements Israel signed. And so I think any hot war would put the UAE, I think, in especially in a very difficult and very sensitive position. Mm. Yeah, so one that they will want to avoid. Christian, thank you very much. No, thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Christian Coates Ulrichsen, a Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy in Houston, Texas. His most recent book, published by Hearst, is Qatar and the Gulf Crisis. In addition to our podcasts, which I'm pleased to say have a rapidly growing global audience, the Arab Digest newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts. 
If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ericdigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we are offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.